0: Up my hands. Lift up my hand lift up my hand lift up my hand. Paul wrote in first Timothy chapter two verse eight I desire that men pray everywhere. Lifting up holy hands without wrath, without doubting. The lifting of the hands may be foreign to your culture, but if you think about it, it really isn't. It's a sign of greeting, it's a sign of honor. There was a defeated government decades ago that it was a sign of saluting, a sign of surrender, it's a sign of adoration next time your are channel surfing just check out the popular artist concerts and people in the front got their hands raised it's a sign of adoration we lift up our hands because we honor him we salute him we surrender to him but most of all watch this we lift up our hands because he was first <laughs> thank you lord for surrendering And showing the Father's love for us by allowing your hands to be lifted up on the cross. (laughs) Lord, this is the least we can do to show our adoration and appreciation to you. We lift up our hands, Lord. We lift up our hands. We lift up our hands. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son who lifted up his hands for us and died so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but might have everlasting life. He wasn't sent to condemn us. He was sent to save us. And through faith in the lifting of his hands that he did for us in the giving up of his life he became the offering, the payment, the penalty for our sins was placed upon him so that we could be freed from our guilt, our condemnation, and our evilness and our iniquity. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We lift up our hands, oh Lord. We lift up our hands. Thank you, Lord. We lift up our hands.
1: church here are just a couple of the many great things happening we want to see all the ladies that can to join us at the women's bible study this tuesday from 10 a.m to noon if you are interested in the book of acts then this is your chance to get more acquainted with the rich and meaningful content and informative church history of luke's second book about what happened after christ's ascension after the bible study join us for a let's go dutch lunch afterwards and, men, if you're interested in encouraging local inmates and reaching out and ministering to those experiencing the toughest part of Hood County's justice system, then we want you to sign up for our county jail outreach on Thursdays at 7 p.m. For more information about signing up for this valid effort, please contact Ken Horton at 817 219 4736. And those are just a few of the many great things that are coming up at Generations. To get more information about everything going on, check out the weekly Lord's Day Bulletin. Visit generationspeople.org and by liking our Facebook page. We'll see you next time.
0: Welcome to Jesus Is, a journey through John's Gospel, where each week we look at a passage from John's Gospel, which is a biography on the life of Jesus. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. And each week we are proclaiming another facet of Jesus, who he is. The context of where we're at is John chapter 5, the beginning of the chapter. He goes to a pool surrounded by sick people and he heals one of them. And then he tells them, take up your bed or your mat, what you've been laying on, and walk. And so some of the religious people of the day saw this and they were very concerned because here's a man working on the Sabbath. And they said, why are you carrying your mat? He said, the person who healed me told me to do it. And they said, well, who healed you? They didn't rejoice with the guy. He'd been ill and invalid basically for 38 years. And they were so concerned about their interpretation of the law of Moses that it robbed them of the joy of seeing a miracle happen and the results of it. So they said, well, who healed you? He says, well, I I, I don't know who he is. Then later on that day, he ran across the path of Jesus, and so he pointed him out. So they launched into attacking Jesus for his poor theology and is breaking the law and they wanted to persecute him and kill him. And so he responded not by saying, I'm sorry, by proclaiming who he was. I'm the son of God. My father's working and I'm working. Yep. We're working on the Sabbath, you know, and then they really wanted to kill him. And so he began to declare who he was to them. And the passage that we're looking at today, he's going to transition from him talking about himself to five others who are witnessing about who he is. And so let's look at verse 31. He said, "If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true." Now the King James I'm reading from New King James. The King James translators decided to translate it, but I think they're missing the point that John made when he wrote this book in Greek. Jesus was just talking about himself. And so verse 31 he says, "If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true." So what's he been doing? Just lying the previous verses? So I looked up some other translations, and I think they got it more right. The New Living Translation says, If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. You know, when someone's falsely accusing you, you can say anything, and it won't work to defend you. If they're out to get you, best to remain silent. But out of his love, he wasn't going to remain silent. He was going to point out some other witnesses they could look to for determining who Christ was. Verse 32. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Who is this another? Some commentaries think it is the Father, and he had just been talking about him. And certainly the father is one of those witnesses. But I think he's talking about John because verse 33 says, you have sent to John, meaning John the Baptist, John the baptizer. He was a forerunner of Jesus. You have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. In John chapter one, the book opens with the introduction of Jesus, who he is, and then the introduction of John the baptizer. And he was a prophet who went throughout the land of Israel proclaiming the truth that the Messiah is coming. Get your houses in order. Stop stealing and restore what you've stolen. Make restitution to those to whom you have done wrong. And he spoke truth everywhere he went. Eventually it got him killed. He spoke the truth to Herod, and that was the end of that. And so they honored him, and they responded by the thousands, thousands of Jewish people, including Pharisees, some of them, were baptized in preparation for the Messiah. So he is a witness that they look to. But then when he pointed him out, behold, the Lamb of God, he didn't fit in their thinking. That's the Lamb of God. He's a carpenter from Nazareth. You have sent to John. He has borne witness of the truth. Verse 34, yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. In other words, I don't need John. You do. I'm pointing them out. The GW translation, God's Word, says, I don't depend on human testimony. I'm telling you this to save you. So Jesus, in his self-defense, isn't frantically pleading for mercy. He's just declaring the truth and say, hey, you guys thought John the Baptist had it going on. He spoke about me, not just me talking about me. Verse 35, he was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. There was a brief period there. You guys were excited about what John the Baptist was saying. And then things got out of hand as you thought. Verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me. That the Father has sent me. So John is a witness. And his works are a witness. He had turned water into wine at a wedding in Canaan. No doubt word of that spread across the land of Israel. He had just healed a man who's carrying his bed around much to their chagrin. These things are saying something. They're signs pointing to something. The Messiah is here. So you have two witnesses, John the Baptist and the works of Jesus. You also have the witness of the Father, verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. (coughs) On two different occasions, it's recorded in the Gospels that a voice from heaven spoke, this is my beloved Son. Once at his baptism, once on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father is a third witness bearing witness to him. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. They refused to admit what they had heard. No doubt, maybe some of them were the Pharisees. But you do not have his word abiding in you. Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Hiding under his father, he says, man, I'm doing what I was sent to do. Sometimes I drive too fast. Latest time, I just forgot about where I was and was going into OTS and got pulled over by a sheriff's deputy. When I saw his lights, I pulled over. Why? Because he was deputized by the sheriff, the man we voted in, to oversee law enforcement in our county. So even though Sheriff Deeds wasn't the one driving the car, the guy driving the car was a representation of the man we voted in. I pulled over out of respect for the law because I was wrong and because Sheriff Deed sent him. These people are rejecting the authority of Almighty God. That's some serious arrogance, isn't it? Verse 39 You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Looking for rules and loopholes as their way to eternal life, they completely missed the prophesied ruler who was to be the way to eternal life. And he was standing in front of them in the flesh. Verse 41, I do not receive honor from men. Message Bible says, I'm not interested in crowd approval. I'm not looking for human praise, the Good News Bible says. But I know you, verse 42, that you do not have the love of God in you. These guys had some serious religion, but it was not anywhere near the love that God intended for his people. Any praise coming from these legalistic and critical Pharisees, should they determine to use flattery to manipulate him, would not have been genuine, because they loved their religion more than they loved God. When they fasted, it wasn't to humble themselves before God. It was to gain approval of their fellow man. Oh, how righteous you are. Look at your long face. You must be suffering today. Verse 43 I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. One commentary says this, How strikingly has this been verified in the history of the Jews? For from the time of the true Christ to our time, 64 false messiahs have impacted their culture by whom they were deceived. Sixty-four. Look at what Jesus said. I've come in my Father's name. You did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And since the time he made this statement, there's been 64 guys. Through the 20th century since the statement was made, there's been 64 guys. Here's the most well-known one. Shabbatai Z. He had 12 official disciples. One represented each tribe. He had a marriage ceremony. This guy lived back in the dark ages. He had a marriage ceremony where he got married to the Torah. Sounds kind of like our day, doesn't it? We've got Mrs. Eiffel who lives out in Oregon, who's married the Eiffel Tower and changed her name. We've got some guy who's married his pillow. So he married the Torah, and, and he was doing some really unusual things, and he got the attention of Jewish culture throughout the diaspora. This could be the Messiah. And they began to believe in him. And then they became concerned but excited when he was captured by the Turks. All right, now he's going to show himself. He's going to really show himself. Did you hear? Shabbatai Z has been captured by the Turks. Now he's going to have to show himself. Some miracles are going to happen. And the sultan at sword point forced him to convert to Islam. They were totally dismayed because their Messiah had become a Muslim, shown to be a fraud. Verse 44, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Some people are not believers because they're afraid of what their friends will say. The contemporary English version translates it like this. How can you possibly believe? you like to have your friends praise you, and you don't care about praise that the only God can give. The complete Jewish Bible says, how can you trust? You're busy collecting praise from each other instead of seeking praise from God only. The New Living Translation says, no wonder you can't believe. For you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. There's a price to becoming a believer. And that price is some people will not respect you. Some people will mock you. Some people will make fun of you. Some people will disown you. Some, in extreme cases, lose their families. But consider the eternal almighty God who desires a relationship with us as to who's most valuable. Which relationship going to last the longest? Friends, I'm not telling you to run your friends off, but if they want to leave, let them leave. Because knowing God is more important than anything in this life. Verse 45, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Out of all the witnesses he's pointed at, they're not accusing. But this final witness, this fifth one, Moses, is the one that accuses them. Here's the first four witnesses. John the forerunner, he wasn't accusing him. He just say, Hey, the Messiah is coming. Make its path straight. Repent. Make restitution. Then there's the works of Jesus pointing to him. Hey, here's the Messiah. Something unique is happening. The next chapter, he feeds thousands of people with a small meal. Signs and wonders pointing to who he is. The Father himself. In John 3, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not have to perish but might have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The world's already under condemnation because of Moses. And then there's the scriptures, the prophets that pointed to the Messiah. But Moses, here comes the condemnation, and he's the one they praise the most not realizing they were nailing their coffins shut by putting their hope in him because he pointed to the Messiah. Verse 46, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you did not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Verse 18, he goes on to say, God says through him prophetically, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command you. And it shall be that whoever will hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Back in John chapter one, when this delegation of Pharisees were sent to interview John, they wanted to figure out who he was and they asked him, are you the Prophet pointing to these prophecies. This is the first messianic prophecy coming from the writings of Moses. So if they truly believed Moses, they would have looked at Jesus and realized, hey, Moses wrote about him. I'd like to speak to you today on the subject Jesus is outside the box. Tell your neighbor he's outside the box. He was outside of the box. Of these critics, these skeptics, these fake believers, these religious people who love themselves more than they love God. He was outside of their box. It was outside of their box to heal someone on the Sabbath and then tell them to carry something. It was outside of their box to believe that God would send his son, his son, someone equal with him would come to earth. It was outside of their box. Because they had pretty much, out of an attempt to honor the word of God, they had equated the scriptures with God himself, the one who inspired the scripture to be written. They had equated them with him, but then they added their tradition, their interpretations, the ways to obey these principles in the Old Testament. They equated them as the same level as the scriptures, as the same level of God, And Jesus told them later, he says, you've made the word of God of no effect by your tradition. He was outside of their box. He was way outside of their box. I didn't make a mistake with these slides. I attempted to do that on purpose. To get the point across that he's outside of the box. Some believe that God is contained by his word. I don't believe that. I believe he is revealed by his word. The Bible's not a box. It's a lens that helps us to see God's ways, his patterns, and his love. He was way outside of their box. He was not dependent on popularity and not being misunderstood. You know, sometimes you're just going to be misunderstood. There's a well-known preacher that footnoted everything while he's preaching. And it was so hard to listen to him until the Lord convicted him that you're afraid of people misunderstanding and falsely accusing you. And it made listening to him so hard because he was always quoting sources and this, that, and the other and giving dates. And it was just way too much information rather than just proclaiming the truth. And if somebody has a question, then he can point to the sources. Christ was not dependent on becoming popular. Oh, what's my stats like? What did the latest polls say? He wasn't running for office. He was not shrinking from enemies or the threat of a painful death. Heard a story of a guy that was making a list of names. Kid at school. And somebody walked up to him and says... uh, what are you doing? He says, I'm making a list of everybody I can whip. Everybody on that list, you can beat him up? Oh, yeah. Said, so Is my name on that list? Yeah. You can't whip me. Oh, well, give me an eraser. I'll take it off. He was not conforming to human opinions or cultural expectations. He came and was himself. He was Jewish. He lived by the law perfectly. But human opinions did not govern his life. And cultural expectations did not govern his life. Cultural expectations meant you don't heal on the Sabbath and tell people to carry things around. Cultural expectations was you show respect to the Pharisees and never disagree with them publicly. He was outside their box. He was not fashioned by religion and yet never contradicted Scripture. Pure religion and undefiled religion is to love God and visit widows and orphans in their distress. The Bible says that. That's good religion. All the other religion, all the other man made ways, can sometimes get in the way of a relationship with God. I knew of one pastor called a fast. None of us are going to eat or drink anything but water for three days. And then he became like a policeman. And one day caught some people down at the Dairy Queen in the drive-thru. And he confronted them. And they said, Pastor, we're not eating. We're just looking at the pictures. (laughs) Missing the whole point. A forced fast is not... That's not going to enhance your relationship with God. Jesus is often outside of our box. Now we're bringing it home. He isn't subject to our fears, our plans, or our controls. Oh, God, you would never ask me to do that. God would never ask me to go to Africa, or God would never ask me to go to Alaska. God would never ask me to give up my vacation time to go on a mission. Who's God in this situation? He is God. He's outside of our box. He's not subject to our fears, our plans, and our controls. Well, my God loves me just like I am and wants to leave me that way. Well, your God probably isn't the God. Take the capital off that G. All right. We are being conformed to his image and not he to ours. Idol-making is a skill that comes to us naturally. We love to shape things according to the way we like it. We decorate our homes. We choose certain cars, or dream of cars that we want. But when it comes to God, He's God, and He's conforming us to His image. And the spiritual walk of growing in Him is learning this lesson, letting Him be God. Heard that prayer. Father, I thank you that I haven't cussed today. I thank you that I haven't lusted today or been greedy or done something wrong. I thank you I haven't gotten angry and sinned. But now I'm about to get out of bed and I'm really going to need your help. Because <laughs> I am not like you. He is God and we are not and He can do as He wills. You ever been mad at God? I was furious with God once. I thought He had called me to Miami. In fact, a church opened up. A pastor called me, invited me to come and take His place. And just the night before, I'd had a dream that I was going to take His place. Must be God, right? But something so significant, you must seek counsel. Have what you think God is saying confirmed because there are demons at work shooting thoughts into our minds, And so I went to see my pastor who delegated an elder to meet with me. And it was as though I was meeting with him, right? Delegated. And so I met with him and shared the story with him. Hey, I had this dream, blah, blah, blah. I finally surrendered and said yes to it. My wife said, this guy called. So I called him back and he said, hey, I'm out of here. I love Miami. I love the beach. You know, it Must be God. He said, okay, I'll take this to the elders and we'll pray over it. A couple days later, he called me back. He said, this is God if it happens exactly like he said it. Exactly? He said, yes. If there's any changes and it's not exactly like God said it or like you think God said it, then don't do it. So I called my friend, said I've sought counsel. He says, "Well, there's been a change. If you came, it would just be for six months." He said I can't do it. I was furious with God because I had got so excited. Miami, yerba mate, black beans and Cuban food, and you know all that stuff. <laughs> Fried plantains every day, and avocados as big as two fists. And finally one day in prayer, I just surrendered to the Lord. I said, God, not my will, yours be done. And if this was me being misled or this was you changing your mind, you have the right to change your mind. I think I had a box that said God never changes his mind. The word says, I am God and I change not. But that's his character, his relationship with us. He has ability to steer us like you steer a car if he's going to be the Lord, right? And so this whole experience brought the impurities out of me, all this religion I had. I didn't know I was so evil. And he led me to draw a sketch in my journal, and it was a gravestone that said, here lies life the way Alan Latta wants it. And then I drew some grass, and then underneath the grass I wrote, it's all over. And peace came. He's God, I'm not, and he can do what he wills. Which leads me to my final point. Recognizing this fact will enable us to really enjoy our lives. Plenty of Christians are not enjoying their walk with the Lord. They're angry at people. They need to let God be God. I know there's teachings on our authority and the importance of, of the authority of the believer and our authority's been Totally delegated, though, is what brings balance to that truth. You can write your own ticket with God if God leads you to write that ticket. But if that ticket's to go to Timbuktu and he wants you to go to London, you're out of his will, no matter what you wrote on your ticket. We can enjoy the Christian life by surrendering to him. His love is outside of our boxes. The member of our church is not here today. He's home preparing to lead worship at another congregation in the city this evening. Moritz Smith, Moritz and Jamie were members here, and then they went as missionaries for four years to Germany, and then they came back. And in coming back, they basically had to start over again. He's a guitar teacher. He had to get new students again. He still had some students in Germany that would teach guitar by Skype, but that's at the wrong hour of the day. And they have two small children in their house, and he's trying to Skype lessons in Germany at the wrong hour of the day for having small children. And jobs aren't coming through. Customers aren't always paying them in a timely fashion. And he began to doubt, began to get angry, and began to have thoughts of atheism. Tempted to think that God wasn't real. The day came where he had an epiphany. He had a moment where he allowed God to be God. And he wrote a song that I think he'll sing for us next week. It's called Out of the Box. He says, I've put you into a box, meaning God, by expecting things would happen in just the way I thought was good. I thought that you would bless me in just the way you should and trust you with my whole heart. And I believe that you would... But I didn't realize that I'd put you in a box. I was asking you for my way when you had something better. I'll let go of these assumptions that disappoint when they don't come through. I'll keep the faith that you'll always lead me. So it's not about me, but it's about you. I've been putting you into a box by expecting you to bless me by the time I thought was good. I pray that you would do it, and I knew that God should. But I felt you let me down when it didn't come through like it could. I'm going to let you out of the box because your ways are better. I'm asking for things so I could receive but I knew you could give me, but it wasn't the best. It wasn't the best. You've got something better, so I will let you out of the box. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this truth. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit right now would pinpoint each area of every heart in the room where we have put you in a box, where we've taken a truth and maybe carried it too far or an experience and maybe camped there and drove a stake there. Lord, whether it's cessationism or disappointment or atheism, God, I pray that you'd bring truth that will smash all of our boxes. Set us free to live hearts that are open and free and only within your boundaries. Expand our territory. Stretch our boundaries to include you in every facet of our lives. Lord, for those of us that have you in the box of Sunday morning, Lord, I pray that you take territory throughout our lives. Lord, knock down our Monday idols, our Tuesday idols, our Wednesday idols, our Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and weekend idols, and holiday idols, and vacation idols. Lord, be Lord and Christ in every area of our life, 24-7, 365.25 days every year, for your glory. In Jesus' name. Let's surrender. I lift up my hands. I lift up my Hands are amazing things. God, in defining Himself in human terms, speaks of His hand. This is a reflection of God. He gave His hands to heal, hands to create, hands to make, hands to surrender. If you just symbolically could take your hands and maybe make a box as square as you can make it, by faith say Lord take everything in me that limits me from enjoying you we can't limit God but we can limit our enjoyment of him take everything in me that limits my enjoyment of you take it from me I surrender it to him Lord break down the limits must open our boxes Lift up my hands we live in a world that's trying to put you in a box, trying to redefine you. Lord, we pray that your truth would shatter those boxes, that you'd open doors of opportunities for us to be evangelists wherever we come across people that don't know you. Give us boldness and courage and love to proclaim the truth of who you are. To be the sixth witness in Jesus' name with the Holy Spirit to be the seventh witness, Lord. Use us to proclaim who you are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. And may in your heart, your hands be lifted always. my hand.